RingCentral are the leading cloud communications and collaboration solution for today's workforce. RingCentral integrates your team messaging, video meetings and business phone into one application, so your team can do more together from anywhere. For a free trial, visit ringcentral.com.au. RingCentral, communications reimagined. Welcome to the Employees Matter podcast where we bring you the latest information to help business owners, entrepreneurs and managers manage their team through COVID-19 and beyond. Listen in as we share leading edge information with experts across a variety of fields, from HR to legal, to negotiation to mental health and so much more to help you not just survive, but thrive through the pandemic. And now here's your host, Natasha Hawker. Paul Ackerman is one of our senior employee experts at Employee Matters. He's based in Melbourne and he has over 25 years experience working in a range of HR generalist and leadership roles. He has worked primarily in the private sector, having spent over 20 years with Accenture, where he held HR leadership roles spanning both Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. In these roles, Paul had responsibility for a broad range of HR functions, including performance management, employee relations, learning and development, workforce planning and recruitment, whilst leading teams of up to 40 HR professionals. Paul has a master's degree in human resource management and industrial relations degree from Melbourne University. Please help me in welcoming Paul. So one of the themes that we're seeing being played out as a result of COVID is restructuring redundancies and unfair dismissals. As some businesses are having to reset, pivot, cut costs, or in some very sad cases, shut completely. One of the scary things is that unfair dismissal complaints are up 70%. So this episode, in my opinion, is a must listen. I am thrilled to introduce you to one of our senior employee experts based out of Melbourne, Paul Ackerman. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. How are you, Natasha? I'm really good. And I'm very pleased to have you here because you've got a lot of experience. And I think a lot of what you're going to share today is going to be hugely helpful to people. So uh, let's start with the beginning. How did you end up where you are today? You're obviously one of our great employee experts, but tell us your career history. Yes, well, I will focus on the career side of it in terms of how I ended up where I am today. Um, so I've, I've worked in human resources for what is nearly 30 years now um, and moved into HR in the early 90s, having kicked around in a couple of different roles prior to that. And uh, found that it was something that I was interested in and felt that I did reasonably well um, and then spent about 25 years in different corporate roles. Um, the, uh, I went back to university in the late 90s to do a master's in HR management and industrial relations, which at the time was my way of really committing to HR as a career. Um, mm. And soon after that, I moved to uh, a company called Accenture, where I spent 20 years and uh, worked in a number of different roles there locally and, and regionally across the Asia-Pac region um, until about three years ago or coming up to three years ago I left there and was looking I think for uh, a bit of a change in pace um, trying to get a little bit more flexibility into my um, working life and that led me to Employee Matters and uh, I've had nearly three years there working um, and enjoying working with a, a range of, of clients and uh, hopefully helping them make a difference and uh, very much uh, enjoying that side of, of the HR world as well. 
Brilliant. And we're very grateful to have you. And I and I know personally how hard working at professional consulting firms can be. So uh, it can be tough. So it's nice to have that change of place. And I know that you have had an interesting career in professional services, but also what I love too, and, and I've been lucky enough to live and work overseas, you worked in Asia. Tell us what that experience was like. What did you learn from living and working internationally? Sure. I think... Um... The opportunity to, to work overseas has really been probably the highlight of my, my working career. And mm. uh, as you say, I, uh, over the years, have worked in a number of different countries in Asia. Um, I spent a year in, in China, in Beijing, a, around mm. the time of the, the Olympics up there. In fact, the, the 12 months leading up to the Olympics back in 2007 and 2008. Um, so that was the main period of time that I had away where I was actually living and working. Uh, but alongside that, had a number of sort of shorter term stints around the region. Um, I think what you, you, you get a huge amount out of that kind of an experience from a personal growth point of view. From a business point of view as well, I, I think what always strikes me is being able to learn more about the culture of the countries that you're getting exposed to and living in, um, meeting the people building relationships with the people and understanding the different ways in which business operates in, in these different countries and contrasting that back to Australia, you know, places like Japan, which is still very male dominated, very hierarchical in terms of how their business works. And, and even within a global organisation, will still try to operate very independently. Um, and then, you know, you come back to Australia and, and we know how we operate here in a much more comparatively relaxed way yes. um, so so those are the sorts of things that I get real value from um, you know, people culture and uh, and how that then impacts you both professionally and, and as a and as a person I think the people puzzle is brilliant and, and I was lucky enough I lived and worked in India and I'll never forget that I rocked up to my job and uh, well my new job my secondment and I was working as the boss of four people, uh, three of whom were women, and none of them had ever worked for a woman before. So they actually thought it was quite cool, you know, that they were <laughs> venturing into this, hey, i got a female boss kind of thing. And I'm still in touch with Sachin, who's, who was the fellow in the team. Uh, but, you know, learning on your feet and understanding the culture really quickly and having to assimilate but also take what you, you do and still get a job done. Um, yeah. It's a really interesting experience. For me too, massive growth experience. So yes. that's great. So tell me, what do you love about what you do and what frustrates you about what you do? What I love, I'll use the word variety in two contexts, um, the variety of work, and, and we'll talk about that probably a little bit mm. more, but uh, um, HR is a very broad area, more than people tend to realise. And uh, so the variety of work keeps it interesting and fresh. Um and the variety of people that you come across, obviously, uh, particularly, again, working in large organisations and working with people at all different levels within an organisation, um, you get to meet some fantastic people along the way. What I have always enjoyed about HR and, and the type of HR work that I've always tried to do is where that intersects with the business mm -hmm. and um, helping impact a business and its outcomes. So that interface is something that I've always sought in my working life and get a lot of satisfaction out of um, seeing how HR can help a business drive its bottom line because it undoubtedly can. 
um, and that's always been an interest of mine. I'd love to explore that a little bit more because I still think we've got a long way to go. I totally agree with you. I think that businesses generally don't put enough value or emphasis on getting the people piece right in order to develop to deliver on the strategy. Tell me a little bit more about that from your side. Why why is the people piece so important? So that jumps to what do I find frustrating <laughs> oh, about great. the HR world because it probably is those people uh, and and it's less apparent to me, I think, now than, than when I started in my HR career, but people who just don't get it in mm. terms of what HR can deliver, um, there there is that view. And it is still out there, I think, that HR is about recruiting, you know, go and get me somebody, and then firing, get rid of them <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, and as you know only too well, Natasha, yes. there's a lot in between that there is higher a lot in between. And, and far component. And and so that, you know, that's frustrating when when you've still when you realize you've still got to sort of turn people around to the fact that that what we do um, does impact the business. Where where it gets difficult is it's not as immediately apparent because it's very hard to put a dollar figure on what we do in terms of planning, developing people, um, how does that have a, a bottom line impact because you can't always put a dollar figure on it. But there's no doubt and there's plenty of research out there that shows that those organisations that do focus on engaging with their people, retaining their people, um, that converts to positive business outcomes. And, and as I say, that's where you know, I, I find the, the greatest point of interest for myself personally. I do too. And I love the fact that you've raised that, that putting the value on it, because that's a tool we're playing with now. It's in its beta version, but I ca I'm calling it the employee ROI scorecard is this working title. And the reason why that is, is we do have some, you know, formulae that can help us, you know, allocate some cost to that. And even I find sharing those, which, you know, you and I have grown up with uh, is a revelation to many small to medium business owners and, and quite a shock when they realize how much cost or dollars they're burning. For example, taking six to 10 weeks to find a person versus two weeks to find a person. So yeah. that's interesting. I'm pleased you raised that. So um, you also have another role, though, running mm. a small business. Tell us about that. What have been some of the challenges for you with COVID? And tell us about sure. running this other business. Yes. So um, my brother and I actually bought a business um, we're coming up for three years ago, um, which is completely left turn for me in terms of uh, experience it's a uh, it's a corporate workwear business we have a store in ringwood in victoria and uh, um, run a, a an account business off at the back of that providing uniforms to organizations that type of thing um, which my brother runs the front end of that's been his career so i leave that well alone but i um, get involved in the um I suppose the back end in terms of some of the, the planning the forecasting and some of the strategic stuff that we're trying to do to grow the business as well as the day-to-day -day, paying some of the invoices, running the payroll, those sorts of things. So uh, um, I guess that's allowed me to further develop that business interest that I was talking mm. about before from an HR point of view. Um, and also on a very, very small scale, try to apply some of my um, ideas about how HR can help grow a business. We've got a small team of four people who are terrific but um 
know, both my brother and I are very much of the same view that we want to bring them along on the journey mm -hmm. of what we're trying to do in terms of growing a small independent business. And we're, you know, we, we're deliberately very open in the way we communicate with them. We want them to feel part of our decision-making process. And uh, so far that seems to work really well. And we, we've got a really close-knit team. And I feel that that kind of endorses some of the practices yeah. I've tried to follow when I've been working for other businesses. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's very exciting. Um, COVID was obviously a challenge last year and we were, we were in, uh, we were closed for a period of time during the lockdown. We were fortunate in that we had only shortly prior to COVID hitting us launched um, our website and that oh, became a bit of a timing. So the, the old click and collect model kicked in there and we were able to keep a bit of a revenue stream going and, uh, since coming out of that, things have bounced back pretty well. So we feel like we have hopefully come through it uh, reasonably unscathed. That's brilliant. I think there's a couple of things that I'd pick up there. One is I'm always of the view that I feel like I learned corporate best practice in my consulting career, but now we apply it in a way that makes commercial sense to small to medium businesses because they don't have the budgets we used to have in those consulting worlds. But I also loved how you, you're sort of applying that business in a practical way to your own business. And I think the other thing I'd share is I think you're a great example of portfolio careers, you know, and what I mean by that is you have two employers, you're still doing great work for both of them and, and that ability to move into different areas. Um, what's your view on that? Was this what you thought you'd be doing at this age? That's a very good question. <laughs> I'm not sure I had any idea what I'd be doing at this age. Um, but I'm very pleased with where I've landed at, at this yeah. stage of my, my life and career. And, and you're right, it's a, it's a different take on flexibility. We, we, we're very focused on flexibility at the moment. And I think COVID has, has brought that to the fore as well with people working from home and so forth. And the notion of work-life balance, um, which is important to me personally at this stage of my life as well. But um, balance can also mean pursuing different types of interests both professionally and you know outside of your professional life and uh, this is something that um, yes I, I probably didn't really imagine I'd end up owning a business or part owning a business but uh, it's um, been possible because I have been able to be flexible in how I'm now managing my HR career and it's created the time to be able to pursue that other interest so uh, Yes, I just think it's a, another take on how flexibility can can come into play. And, um, yeah, I, I'm very pleased with how things have ended up for me. And I think the other benefit for your clients, and I've heard it from your clients, is you get it from a different perspective. I think there's nothing like being a business owner. It's one of the toughest things I, I say. I used to think I worked hard for my professional consulting business. Nowhere near as working hard as working for this boss that uh, that right in front of me. Um, and so I think that's really important. So I think that you would bring a lot of business perspective, but also nuances to running a small business to your clients. There's no doubt it helps. And particularly the clients that we typically work with within employee matters. Um, you know, I mean, they're, they're obviously bigger than, than our little business, but uh, they're still in that small to medium size. Mm. So the relatability now, uh, uh, just sort of understanding the challenges that, that they're going through, not just from the theoretical advisory point of view, but actually knowing 
that these people are on the hook for the decisions that they're going to take and mm. uh, the additional pressure that comes with that. And um, yes, just getting a little taste of that through through the business that, uh, that my brother and I are. And running. what's the name of the business? I can't yep. remember. So I'll get my little plug in, can I? Yes, you can. Go <laughs> so for it. Access Workwear and Safety, and our website is accessworkwear.com.au. Brilliant. So go and check that out if you need any of those uniforms or work gear. So we're going to change tack now, and I want to start to talk about uh, running a redundancy process from a compliant uh, or compliance perspective. What do you see are the main steps in order to make sure you're running a compliant redundancy process? I think the way I I would look at this, Natasha, and, and would try to get people to think about this is to break it into two component parts, if you like, because um, when we talk about risk, which we will do, I think that's the best way to think in terms of the, the potential risks associated with this process as well. So, so the first of those two is what I'll call legitimacy, because if we're talking about a redundancy, it's very important that, that the business understands what that really means. Um, and what that means is that you are making a role redundant rather than removing an individual. The, the exiting of the individual is the consequence of the role becoming redundant. And so it's really important that you have the basis for that decision of a redundancy correctly in place and um, well-documented and something that you can present um, in, a, in a manner that, that removes any scope for speculation that this is actually an attempt to target an individual and remove them from the organisation. Um, and I'll talk later about how you do that, but, but that's, the, that's the first and foremost, that's the thing that, that, that is critical to make sure that this is a legitimate redundancy that we're dealing with. Um, however, that doesn't get you off the hook in terms of making sure that the whole process is run correctly. And the second part of that is, is the process itself and making sure that you follow a correct methodology that takes you from start to finish um, and doesn't leave you open to an unfair dismissal claim, for example, because even if the redundancy itself is valid, um, the process by which you get there can still get you into, into difficulty. Um, so I might pause there. I don't know if there's any sort of follow-up there because I can talk yeah. a little bit more about the process if you'd like me yeah, to. Yeah, I, I think that that would make sense and I think that's been really well put and is often misunderstood. And even from the individual going through redundancy, Paul, they'll often say, I was made redundant, you know, rather than actually my role was made redundant and unfortunately I was a byproduct of that redundancy. So tell us more about the process. Yeah, and you're right. The language is really important because it does reflect um, the, the, the sort of intent and, and what's going on. The process, um, I, I'm calling it the three C's. I don't know if this is going to catch on or not, but uh, it, it helps me think about the things you need to cover. Um, and the three C's are consult, consider and care. Consultation is, is crucial to the whole process. So what, let, let's assume we, we've established the, legit, the, the legitimacy of the redundancy and now we're going through the process to, to achieve that outcome. It's, it's really important that you have a consultation process in place 
that is going to involve the people that are being impacted and that allows them to have involvement in the process. Um, and I'll talk more about that. But uh, if you don't do that, then the risk is that you're imposing this outcome, you're forcing it, it can happen too quickly. Consultation forces us to my second C, which is consider, mm. because in any redundancy situation, the decision to make a role redundant really needs to be the last course of action, not the first course of action. So have you considered all the alternative options that are in play? If this role is, is no longer part of your business, you no longer have a need for it for whatever reason, the individual in that role needs to be thought of in terms of can we place them somewhere else? Is there another opportunity within the organisation? The decision to exit that individual needs to be the last course of action um, after you've been through that period of considering what the options are for them. And back to the consultation step, that also involves including them in that process and giving them the opportunity to consult with you about what they think their career opportunities might be. And the bigger the organisation, the more scope there will be for that, obviously, but it's still a step every business needs to go through. Mm. Um, and then the third C, which kind of runs and underpins all of that, the, the care part of it, goes to the attitude that you bring to the process. You'll get the process right if you genuinely care about the outcome for the individual. And so having decided that redundancy is the course of action you need to follow, that's a big business decision. Um, and, and, and that's something that the business takes independently. Once that decision is made, everything after that should have a focus on the employees impacted. Mm. Not just those leaving, but those that are remaining, because That's everybody's right. impacted by a redundancy program um, and making sure that you have a focus on achieving the best possible outcome for those people, given the circumstances. And that's really about caring um, for, for all of your employees. So, so that's kind of how I view the process in those sort of boxes. And I think if you can tick each of those boxes, you'll get you'll get to the right outcome. I really like that. Uh, I, I think that's really helpful. And I think that's very tangible for business owners and managers. So let's talk about if you haven't done it well, what are the risks if you get this wrong? Okay, so the one that hangs there immediately, and I've already used the term unfair dismissal, um, is, is probably the thing that everybody's most concerned about, um, that yes, there is always the possibility that somebody um, has their employment terminated through redundancy, decides that they weren't treated correctly and they'll bring an unfair dismissal claim against the employer. Um, and there, there, there's no doubt that that can happen and um, it, it's something that you need to be prepared for. Um, and that's clearly a risk and the risk reduces the better you are at following that process and ensuring the legitimacy that we've just talked about. So unfair dismissal is a big risk, not, not just from a dollar's cost point of view, but from the time involved, um, because if you find yourself in an unfair dismissal claim, there's a huge amount of documentation you're going to need to pull together, time that's going to be involved from the business owners, from other management level staff. So it, it's, it's a huge undertaking. Um, but there are other things that, that pose a risk um, for a business. I think one that perhaps doesn't always get focused on so much is the reputational risk. Um, 
you don't want to become known as a business that has mistreated its employees and running a redundancy program, there is huge risk that if you get that wrong, then the message gets out there in the marketplace um, amongst your clients, amongst potential future employees of the business that, um, that this is something that you've just not been able to do correctly. If you end up in an unfair dismissal case, that just underlines that point. But even if you don't, um, the manner in which you deal with your people, care with your people is something that those people will talk to others about and your reputation will be enhanced or, or harmed one way or the other. So, so that reputation point, I think, is, is important. And then the third thing I would say, which I've touched on, but um, is the impact on the, uh, the employees that remain because something like this does touch everybody um, and um, the risk of getting it wrong is that you uh, lose your own people that remain in terms yeah. of their engagement, in terms of their commitment. Um, and the one thing I'd like to just say to that, and perhaps goes back to process a little bit, but is, a, is, is an important point of advice that I would want to give to any business that, that's running um, redundancies is take the pain in one hit. Yep, it's a good point. Get it done and then move on. Yeah. What you don't want to do is have a round of redundancies and then have to do it again in three months time or six months time, because the anxiety that will cause amongst your people, that uncertainty of, am I next? When is this going to happen again? If you can give a message to your people that said, yes, this has been horrible, yeah. but we're done. And yeah. now here are all the good things about the business as we move forward. That also is a really, I think, crucial thing to be able to do and comes to you know minimizing the risk of, of losing the the support of the the staff that remain. I think that's so uh, important that and you raise a really good point there because you know for for business owners where it's like death by a thousand cuts, your employees will not be focused on their job. They will not be productive. They'll be spending half their time, you know, whispering around trying to find what's going on. So you know it's going to be very detrimental. Uh, to those people that are remaining in the business. So let's move to the employee that's going through a redundancy per, uh, process. This can be incredibly challenging for them. Um, they're likely to have major concerns about their financial security. Are they going to be able to find another job? Um, we talk about at Employee Matters running this process with dignity for the impacted employees. How can you do this? How can you make sure that that care piece that you talked about with the three Cs is foremost in in the process. Yes, and, and you're right. It is it is the care part of this. Um, and as I said before, but I'll, I'll sort of re-emphasize it. Um, I think it, it's about ensuring that you put your focus on the individuals that are being impacted by the exercise. Um, and how do you do this? You do it by being open with them as much as you possibly can. So there are steps that you need to go through as you're communicating a redundancy to an individual. Um, and you can do that the right way and you can do that the wrong way. And it comes down to detail, really, Natasha. It's about things like, okay, we're going to have a conversation with an individual and we're going to tell them that their, their job is, is likely about to, to end or their role is certainly about to be removed from the organisation. So how do you set that up properly? to the point of where do you do it? Is there a meeting mm. place 
that is private from the rest of the office because you don't want to do that in a glass-fronted office no where everybody can be peering in because it's an emotional conversation. So it's points of detail like that. Um, the openness, I think, is really important. So you need to be able to share the reasons behind the decision as much as you possibly can. And that doesn't necessarily mean to say you've got to divulge dollars and cents about the state of the business, but it certainly does mean that you need to be able to step the person through the process that you've gone through to come to that decision, the ways in which you've tried to find alternative solutions as a business, um, to give them the reassurance that, yes, this is the um, last option, not the first mm. option, as we were talking about before. Mm. Um, so be open in your communication. And then the other thing that I think is, is, is important as much as you can is involve them in the decisions that they can have influence over because it's a very disempowering process to go through as the person being made redundant because this decision about your career and your life has been made for you mm. and you don't get to impact that decision about your role being made redundant. So are there things that you can still have ownership of as you go through the process? And that could be things like, okay, how are we going to communicate mm. to the rest of the team your departure? I'd be interested to hear your view on how you would like to leave the organisation. Do you want to make an announcement? Do you want the opportunity to have a farewell mm. event? You know, sometimes these things aren't always going to be possible. It will depend on the circumstances, but the conversation is always possible. Mm. Give people the opportunity to, to take back some ownership of what's happening to them. Um, I think that's really important as a way of managing the process and, as you say, treating it with dignity. I think that's key. And if anyone wants to hear about it from the other side, um, we've got a podcast with uh, Aideen Gallagher who talks about her experience of being uh, exited from an organisation and uh, I think it's a very compelling interview in terms of how she was feeling from the other side. So uh, well worth a listen. So let's talk, continue on that care uh, vein. What's an employee assistance program, EAP, and, and why should you use one of these? That's basically a program that describes what an employer or a business can offer to attract and retain its people. That's really why you have that kind of program in place. Mm. It's about, you know, who are we as a business? What are our values? And what can we offer to our people, firstly, to attract them and make them want to work here and then to make them want to stay? And so automatically your mind goes to dollars and cents because, that's a big part of that. Um, what do we pay people? How do we reward good performers? Um, that, that, that's one part of it. But if you focus purely on the monetary side of employment, you're missing out on a lot of things that will differentiate you as an employer. So the EVP, the EAP, is also about what sort of developmental opportunities do you give to your mm -hmm. staff in terms of training, in terms of career experience, um, increasingly, uh, particularly important to people coming into the workforce these days, is what does the business do from a community involvement point of mm. view? That's really important to people. Am I working for an employer that, that has a good sense of community that wants to co contribute back to the society that it's, that, that it's a part of? Um, so these are all different components of a program that you then put together 
um, and can, as I say, hopefully differentiate you from your competitors mm. in terms of attracting and keeping your people. And to try to loop it back to the theme of today, I think it also does have a bearing on things like retrenchment because, mm. or redundancy, because um, if you've got a strong EVP program, mm. you're going to have an engaged workforce and an engaged workforce is a productive one, which mm. drives a successful business. And a successful business is far less likely to find itself in a situation of having to cut back on people than one that, that is not going so well. So there is a, a circle of life there at play is. there a little bit. There is. So if we talk about an employee assistance program, you know, that counselling support, why would you want to offer that to your employees? It's another cost in a very expensive redundancy process. I'm cutting people because I don't have any money. Why would you be offering an employee assistance program? Sure. Yeah. Yep. So, um, and I'm going to call that outplacement because that's the, the, yes. the term that I've always known through my career. But uh, you're right. Um, employee assistance programs, outplacement programs, they can come with a fairly significant cost. Um, although they are also quite diverse in terms of the sorts of packages that can be offered. So um, there are some that are far more expensive and, and high end, if you like, which would typically be targeted at more senior executives in terms of providing support. And, and then you can still offer some sort of a, a program at a, at a lower cost. So depending on the size of the business, the nature of the roles and the people that are leaving, um, to some degree, that can be tailored to fit the, you know, the, the, the budget of the business involved. Um, but why do it? Because... Again, it comes, back, it comes back to that care thing a little bit, but taking that beyond the end of the person's life with you as, as the employer. Um, it's a way of helping people transition to what comes next in their career. And I think it's that what comes next piece that, that, that's really key here because, uh, as we've sort of touched on, um, it's really important as you're going through a redundancy process that as soon as possible, as early in the piece as you can, get the person focused to the future. Mm. Because the message you're giving is about their past career with you as the employer and, and how that's going to end. And that's a very negative message and that is, is an emo emotionally fraught message. So having delivered that, you really need to, need to try to switch people to, yes, there's still a good future mm. for you out there. And you need to focus on that now in terms of what comes for you in the rest of your career and the rest of your life. Um, an employee assistance program can help with that. And it's something tangible that you can offer that gets the person switched on to that future mm. view as soon as possible. Um, and that will then not only help them, but also help you as the employer in terms of um, sort of executing this process because mm. That is something, it's a program you can put on the table, shows your commitment to their future um, and is probably a way of making sure or, or doing the best that you can to make sure that uh, the person is going to leave in a positive frame of mind. Um, Transition. Yeah. It's so true. And I think, too, the other thing we've got to remember is some of these people who are exiting have often been in the same role for a very long time. They don't even know how to go and find a job now. They haven't done an interview for 20 years. Their CV hasn't been updated for 20 years. So outplacement can provide them that support while they transition into to the next piece. 
Now, we touched on it a bit earlier before, but I want to go back to it. And, and you mentioned it, Paul, when we talk about why um, some businesses seem to forget the communications piece, both internally uh, with their employees, but also externally with stakeholders and clients. Why is getting this communication piece so important? Look, it, it, it's, it's really critical. Um, and, and the thing that I will add to, to what we've talked about before is the importance of controlling the message. Mm. So that's about keeping ahead of the rumour mill. Mm. Um, both internally and externally, you've, you've got to be you've got to be um, on top of how messages are being communicated to your people internally. Um, as I've said, this is a very unsettling time for for everybody that's involved in this, whether they're leaving the organisation or not. And what you can be certain about is, no matter how confidentially you think you have managed this process it will get out there and it will happen quickly and if you don't have a communication plan ready to roll um, then you're going to be constantly in damage control mode mm. so get out there first be upfront with your people in the same way that I'm suggesting to be upfront with the individuals impacted share as much information as you can do it early take the team through the journey with you and as i said before and when it's done communicate that clearly as well mm. because now it's time for us to look to the future as well um, and and i think the same sort of messages apply externally because we've talked before about um you know reputational damage in the mm. marketplace and part of managing that is making sure that again you're getting to your clients early letting them know what's been going on or what's about to go on um, reassuring them you know about the the viability of the business mm -hmm. we're, we're still business as usual in terms of our service to you and making sure that the points of detail are being covered off if, if it means that this person's going to have a new contact within the organization get the introductions done make sure that that is is in place as well um, so yeah so can't overemphasize the importance of communication and, and getting that right and getting it done up front and, and, and early, early on in the piece. Totally agree. So if we think about employee matters, how do we help clients that are needing to go through this process? Yeah. Well, I think what we can do are a number of things. Um, we can help a client break this down into manageable steps. And we've, we've kind of talked about that today in terms of the different sort of component parts to, to the process. And, and this can be something that can seem like a huge hurdle for a business, particularly if they're doing it for the first time. It's daunting. Mm. So, so if we break it down into manageable steps that um, are clearly understood by, by the client in terms of what they've got to do, what are their responsibilities, what comes next? What comes after that? I think that makes it a more um, manageable and feasible exercise from their point of view, because this can be difficult for the impacted individuals to go through, but it's equally difficult for the, the, the business and those that are running the process to go through as well. Um, and so tied to that, we can, we can help the business be thorough making sure that they've taken every step to the level of detail that they need to and that they've done it in a timely fashion. So we just talked about communication, mm -hmm. having a communication plan that's ready to roll before ever you start the process rather than 
developing one on the fly, reacting to what's going on around you. So, so stepping it through in a, in a timely fashion as well. Um, I think we, we're also there to sort of test the thinking a little bit. So mm-hmm. I know when I, if I deal with a client that's about to go through a redundancy program, the first thing I will get them to do is to say, tell me why you need to do this. Mm-hmm. Because okay. if you can't tell me, you're not going to be able to tell a commissioner in an unfair dismissal claim. And if we haven't got that clearly articulated, then that's our starting point and nothing else happens until we've got that step properly, properly dealt with. So, so that sort of testing of the thinking to make sure that they've come to the right conclusion um, is really important as a, as a starting point. Um, and then, then our involvement can really be flexible depending on what the business needs from us. So we can be there as a coach, um, helping you through a process that you as the client are going to run completely yourselves, or we can be much more the handholder, mm. actually to the point of sitting in a meeting and, and, and taking the notes and, and being completely involved in what's happening as it goes along. Um, and that really is, is a matter for the business to decide what they feel comfortable with and that will go to, you know, what experience they've had of this in the past. Mm. Um, but certainly from our point of view, we've got that flexibility to get involved to, to the extent that's necessary or indeed to be a little bit more proactive in that and say, look, I think this is what you need from us. Yeah. So, so even though you don't think you need me there, I think you do. I'm I think you do. <laughs> Wait till someone starts to cry or gets really angry at you and exactly. see how that script's going. Exactly. <laughs> and in my experience, usually the answer to that, is yes, please, come on. Yes, yeah, (laughs) I think they're all really good points. The other thing I would add, and I think this is often, I think is around scripting and the coaching is absolutely key, like role-playing with our clients so that we can have that difficult conversation playing the person who's being impacted. Just having a run-through, a dry run-through is incredibly helpful. The other thing that I see a lot of businesses aren't good at is the calculations. You know, what in reality is this going to cost me because if you don't know what it's going to cost you, how you know how are you going to know what it's going to save you in the longer term? And, and there's some financial modelling required in that, and um, and you don't want to get those calculations wrong. So I think Absolutely. that's really important. Um, so we often also see, Paul. I don't know whether you see this with some of your clients, but often I see that businesses underestimate the time involved in running a redundancy program. What amount of time should they be allowing? Yeah. I mean, there's an element of how long is a piece of string to this because it really does depend on the size of the organisation, the, the, the scale of the exercise. Are you letting one person go as a result of one role? Is it a whole team? Is it so, so the size impacts the time, but there are still some things that are consistent regardless of the, the, the scale of the exercise that you need to allow time for. Um, and probably the piece that gets um, swept aside too quickly is that upfront planning Mm. um it's not okay as a business to just say all right we're going to get rid of this role decisions done when can we talk to the person as i've said you 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 really need to take the time to um, be able to actually document your decision making process you need to take the time to explore other opportunities for the individuals that are going to be impacted Um, Often this is about looking at an organisational structure and developing a new one, and that needs to be something that you can produce when it's needed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is that days? Is it weeks? It depends on the size and the complexity of the business. 
but it's longer than you think it is, mm. um, which may not really help, but it's something you need to go in with that thought in mind. Um, and then beyond that, each of these steps that we've been talking about today, they take time. You need to develop a communication plan. And I would be saying you, you timetable the whole process and you mm. say, this is when I'm going to talk to the team and I need to then book in that team meeting in advance. I can't just pull everybody together at an hour's notice. So you need to really work backwards from mm -hmm. the date at which this is going to take effect. And you're going to find yourself working backwards weeks and in some cases months yep. because that's how long it can take to do this properly. Mm. Um, so then you get to the time involved once you're actually talking to the individuals that are going to be effective because that is not one meeting and they finish up that day. There needs to be time built in there and that we can talk about in a fairly standardised way because when you first speak to the individual, you're making them aware of the situation, you're explaining the impact on their role, but you're not yet saying that you're leaving the organisation because this is where that consultation mm. C comes back into play, where you need to give an appropriate period of time for the individual to go away, absorb the information that's been given to them, but also have the opportunity to come back to the business to say, well, these are things that I would like you to consider in terms of my skills, my experience, and where I think you might still be able to place me. Mm. Um, now, again, in a very small business, the opportunity for that to realistically occur may be very slim. You still need to allow that opportunity Absolutely. to occur. In a larger organisation, this might be about um, what we would call a redeployment exercise, where we actually allow a period of weeks to explore with the individual or the individuals other roles within the business that they might legitimately be able to move into. So again, working back from that end date, some businesses will need to factor in a, a period of time that can be a period of weeks to conduct a, a legitimate redeployment program so that once that decision is taken, where you come back to the individual and say, unfortunately, we don't have anything for you, we are going to have to let you go. That's been done on the back of a thorough exercise and not a half-hearted one. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure that's answering the question in no, terms of actual look, time, I, but it's some of the I things that have got to be factored in. I think it's very clear that it needs to be carefully managed. I think that's what co what's come out of it. We touched on it earlier, but it's a very expensive process, um, a redundancy process. Um, how can we understand the costs we're up for here? Sure. Um, so the first thing I would say is know your award and know what's in the, um, the, the, the NES, the, the National Employment Statement, because those are the documents that will set out any specific requirements for your business in terms of redundancy pay that your people are entitled to. So that's, that's the first step. Always be on top of what's in there because it can vary. Um, then and this might seem obvious, but again, for smaller businesses, it's not necessarily always the case. You just need to make sure you've got up-to-date records on your people because a redundancy will be, or the cost of a redundancy will depend on um, length of service that somebody has with an organisation and also it has an age component to it mm -hmm. as well. So um, if you don't have that information up-to-date on your people, 
uh, that can mean that you get it wrong in terms of uh, costing out what they're entitled to. So, so those are probably the two key points, I think, in terms of understanding what the, the direct cost is going to be. Then you've got the attached costs, and we've talked about sort of outplacement or assistance programs as something that you then need to consider the affordability of and weigh up the, the sort of um, cost benefit to, to building something like that into the program. Um, and I guess the final point I would say to that is this whole thing becomes a great deal more costly if you don't do it correctly and you end up in the commission and facing um, unfair dismissal costs. So uh, getting the process right is the way of trying to at least minimise what your end cost is going to be. Yeah, which is fantastic because, you know, you, employees, depending on their salary bracket, can get up to six months' salary. So that is a, a big payout on top of their redundancy just because not the reason that you wanted to make someone redundant was wrong, but the process you followed was wrong. That's brilliant. Is there anything else you think we could share with our listeners that would be helpful that we haven't covered off? I know we've covered lots of stuff off today. Um, I think we've covered most of what I would want to get across. Um, there are points of detail that we haven't talked about. And, no. uh, you know, if, if, if we're working through with a client, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll make sure that all that detail mm. is in place. Um, so one thing that's in my mind that we haven't talked about today is um, making sure that the individual has the opportunity to bring a support person yes. with them to all of the meetings. And that's that's very procedurally, that's very important. Commission mm. will always look for that if they're reviewing a case. So there are points of detail like that that we haven't touched on. And I'm sure there's opportunities for people that are interested to Find follow up with us if, they, if they've got questions. So... You're a HR practitioner with, you know, 30 years experience. You've seen a lot. What ma I'm always really keen to know I, what makes a good leader, what makes a good boss in your mind and what can our managers, our, our aspiring managers do to improve their skills? Sure. So I, 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 I have a little checklist of, of what I think makes a good manager and I'm always nervous to share it because then I start assessing myself <laughs> against, against I mean, it. I was having, just about to start taking notes. Oh. <laughs> having, having been in management roles for, for many, many years and I'm, I'm not sure how well I score myself against all of these, but I think the one that's top of my list and, and um, if I'm starting to sound repetitive on some of the things we've talked about today, I'll apologise, but I, I don't really because... Communication is, is so key. If I think about the, the good managers I've had in my career, and I've had a number of good ones, and I've had a number that, that I wouldn't describe as quite so good, um, those that communicate well mm. and authentically mm. and aren't just paying lip service to it, um, that, that, that makes an enormous difference. Immediately you're engaged with that person um, uh, in a far deeper way than you otherwise would be. Um, and some of that is innate. Some people just have a, a style of communication that, that, um, that, that works well for them. But we all have our own sort of authentic way of being. And I think the important thing is, particularly for new people moving into management roles, don't feel like you've suddenly got to change the person that you are. You got there through your abilities mm -hmm. and the attributes that you can bring. Um, so trust that that will also see you through your management career. Um, and the other thing I'd say on communication, because I think it's so important, the most important part of 
good communication, I think, is good listening. Mm. Communication is not just talking, it's hearing. Yes. Um, and, and very few of us do that very well. Um, I think uh, I've always responded well to people that are calm and reassuring in, in the way that they manage others. Um, when the going gets tough, the good managers are the ones that can keep things calm, can keep people reassured about what's going on and that we're going to get to the, the right end result. Um, so that, 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 that's something that I think is important. And knowing your stuff is important too. Um, it, it, it's, it's far more important to respect your manager than to like them. Mm. And respect for your manager comes first and foremost, I think, from knowing that they know what they're doing. Um, so, you know, take the time to keep your professional development up to date so that you do have that um, depth of knowledge that, that you can then convey to the, the people that you're, that you're leading. And I've chosen that last word deliberately because the other thing that I think um, is, is what I always was conscious of in terms of, of, of trying to be a good manager is actually that that's the wrong word because it's about being a leader mm. rather than a manager. Mm. Um, and, and there's a very definite difference between the two. A leader is someone who has a vision for where they're taking the business or their part of the business and can communicate that to their team and bring them along the journey. A manager is the person who's keeping on top of things day to day and everything's under control and maybe we're delivering the next outcome on the list. But what about the outcome in 12 months' time, in 24 months' time? And are you even aware of what that outcome should be? And do you have a view on how we're going to get there? That's mm -hmm. leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the thing that, that really distinguishes the good managers or the great managers from mm -hmm. the good even, um, if, they, if they can bring that leadership component to bear. Brilliant. That is fantastic. I think I've been taking lots of notes and I'm sure everyone else is. Look, Paul, as always, I learn from you every time we interact. Um, thanks for sharing what can be a hugely difficult process. Uh, but also what I loved about it was that you showed how it can be done with dignity and care. And I, and I love the three C's of cons consult, consider and care. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to contact you? Sure. Um, my email address is mm -hmm. paul.com. Ackerman at employeematters.com. Um, that surname is A-C-K-E-R-M-A-N. Um, and that's probably the, the best way. And I will very happily get back in touch with anybody who wants to reach out to me. Brilliant. Thank you, Paul. Look, if you enjoyed this interview, you're also going to enjoy our interview with one of our, what we call our resident mediation employee experts, which is Catherine Chatsellis, who takes you through the process should you be called up to the Fair Work uh, Commission and, and uh, need to uh, be under a mediation. So thanks for listening and remember to subscribe or better still tell your friends and family about the Employees Matter podcast. I'm Natasha Hawker and remember your employees really do matter. I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode of Employees Matter podcast with Natasha Hawker. For episode notes and other resources, please visit employeematters.com.au forward slash podcast. While you're there, you might like to subscribe for future episodes so you can continue to thrive during the COVID-19 crisis. Please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends, team and business network. This podcast was proudly brought to you by Ring Central.